MRI safety is at the forefront of our profession. It starts with protecting Zone 4 and is why the ACR recommends using a caution barrier at the Zone 4 entrance. But what good is another sign in a room full of signs? Well, Aegis has created the perfect solution with TechGate Auto. TechGate Auto allows more focus on the patient and less worries about someone entering the room without being cleared. If you're serious about MRI safety, use the link in the description below to find out more. Zone 3 Podcast. I am Robert. Yes, and I am Reggie. And we all know who our guest is. He's been here before. Toby, welcome. Thank, Thank you, guys. Toby in the house. Uh, great Coming to be straight back. from Kansas City, I believe, right? That's right. Just yeah. flew in. When did you fly in? I uh, got in last night. So. Awesome. And you are here in Phoenix for a conference, I believe. Which one is that? So here for the AHRA, the Radiology Administrators um, Annual Meeting, mm -hmm. um, yes. which is probably the of the conferences that I go to, probably the one I enjoy the most. Um, so lots of really great content and lots yeah, of great- Yeah, we'll be there too. We're not administrators, but we'll be there. Yeah. <laughs> um, we'll but be administrating <laughs> interviews. <laughs> We're in July and at the end of this week, or I should say this month is the week of uh, say, MRI safety. And so in lieu of that, we wanted to kind of discuss the ACR uh, white papers and how this year is the 20th anniversary of its original copy. Um, if you would just kind of take it from there. Sure. So, um, I'm, we talked before about the Columbini accident and we walked, you know, through, you know, some of what that involved. One of the things that happened immediately after the Columbini accident was, um, the ACR assembled this group and said, Hey, wait a minute, we need to figure out, you know, how to prevent this and, and other MRI accidents from happening in the future. And that, that committee, that panel, um, published a year later. So the accident happened in 2001. In 2002, the, they published what was originally called the White Paper on MR Safety. Um, um, and that document really, at least in the US, was the first time that there was a, a set of best practice standards for MRI safety in print, you know, directing MRI providers, hey, guys, do this or don't do that or whatnot in, in terms of maintaining safety. Um, so there were other documents um, in other parts of the world. Um, uh, the UK had um, some safety guidance from their um, national regulatory folks. Uh, but this was really the first time that in the US there was um, um, best practice guidance. And that document really became sort of the, the, the best practice of MRI safety best practices and became the basis for um, a lot of future development um, that that document. So 2002 was the white paper on MR safety. It got revised and expanded in 2004. And then they changed the name to the guidance document for safe MR practices. Um, so that was 2004. And then there was an update and expansion in 2007. And then again in 2013. Um, and then in 2020, the ACR switched it. Um, all of those previous ones that got published in the peer-reviewed literature. In 2020, they made it um, a manual, which means that the 
the ACR self-publishes the, the document. Part of that was a practical reason. The document was just getting so big that none of the academic journals really wanted to dedicate that many pages to it. You know, that pushes right. a lot of other peer review research out of, you know, an edition of the journal because the paper, the ACR guidance document was so long. So part of it was just practical purposes. Um, another part of it was, hey, wait a second. If something new comes up, you know, we're going to have to put together an entirely new manuscript and submit it for peer review and wait for the editors to kind of come back and the peer reviewers and maybe they don't like it and maybe we got to go back and we got to tweak something or whatnot. And the peer review process takes months, sometimes years to kind of get everything done. They're like, you know, if we get something important, we want to be able to get that information out quickly. Um, and so that was another reason that they wanted to, to go with the, the manual self-publication. So that document came out in 2020. The year before then, they actually did sort of a, a movie trailer version of the 2020 document. Um, um, I can't remember exactly what the title of it was, but it was essentially, you know, here's here's the new content that's coming out in the, the 2020 document. And they published it in the peer-reviewed literature in 2019. But they were able to kind of shrink it down and just say, here's the new stuff we're adding. And it wasn't like the whole document. Right. So hopefully they'll continue to do that because I know, you know, being in the peer reviewed literature, it gives some of the stuff a little bit more weight. So I guess the purpose of it is, is always stay on top of like developments and um, devices and just technology in general in terms of MRI safety. Yeah. I'm, you know, trying to to capture in words, capture in best practices, um, you know, whatever the latest and greatest knowledge is. And, and some of that is, hey, we've learned new things about old stuff. You know, let's right. let's share this information. And some of it is, hey, there's new stuff that, you know, we didn't have a chance to, to address before. Um, but that that document is really sort of, you know, a living and growing document. I mean, if you look going back 20 years ago to the original version to where we are today, right. you know, some pretty significant expansions <clears throat> of, of scope and content and that sort of thing. And I guess by complying with these guidelines would make a facility ACR accredited. Um, so, so that's one of the weird things is no, the answer to that question, short answer is no. Um, the safety, um, publication, um, is really only tangentially related to ACR MRI accreditation. Now, mm. if if you if you are at a site that's never been ACR MR accredited before, you know you have to put together like this whole package of images and you know phantom um, scan data and that sort of thing. You have to send all of this to demonstrate image quality. You send that all off to the ACR and they require, you know, certain numbers of certain types of clinical images as well. You know, so not only are you getting, you know, phantom, you know, QA, QC related scans, you're actually getting real clinical scans that you have to submit and say, you know, look, you know, is that a, an annual thing? Um, you know, I don't know what the frequency of resubmitting the, the images is. You have to do it for initial accreditation. And I don't know if it's every year or every three years or something like that to, to, to resubmit. Um, but you have to do all of this stuff. And, and anybody who's ever had any role in getting ACR MR accreditation 
knows that, you know, if you don't submit every image with the scan parameters just exactly the way they tell you to, or if they're unhappy with the, you know, slice thickness or, or whatever th those things are, they're going to kick it back to you and they're going to say, yeah, no, this, you didn't follow instructions or we don't like your images or whatever, right. you know, redo and resubmit, but we're not approving you based on, on this, right? Every accrediting organization essentially makes two promises, really not to the, the, the hospital or the imaging center that they're accrediting, but to the rest of the world to say, look, these guys who have our accreditation, we promise that they meet minimum standards for quality and safety, right? Right. So in MR, that's image quality and MR safety, right? So the image quality piece of it they have down to a fine science, you know, right. we're going to tell you exactly what you need to submit. You know, we're going to review these with a fine tooth comb. And if we don't like them, we're going to send them back. We're going to make you do them over right on the safety side, totally different. So as a, an ACR accredited site, you have to have a, a medical physicist, an MR physicist. Mm -hmm. Either, you know, on staff or somebody you contract with who comes in and periodically, you know, verifies your, you know. Does your testing and all that right. kind of stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. Signal to noise ratios and, you know, slice thickness accuracy and right. you know, how many spokes do you see on the ACR Phantom and right. all that stuff. So you hire, view the site, hire, you know, a medical physicist to come in and, and maintain your quality. Well, the safety piece of the accreditation is the physicist fills out a little checklist. Uh -huh. um, and that checklist is 21, 23 items long. Almost every one of those items, it's 21 items long. 18 of the 21 items is, does the site have an MR policy on fill in the blank? Uh... Do you have a policy on patient screening? Do you have a policy on, you know, hearing protection, you know, right. that, those sorts of things. And the physicist just checks yes or no, um, or not applicable. So if you have like a, a cryogen free magnet, you don't need a quench policy kind of thing, but you know, otherwise, right. you know, do you have it? Do you not have it? Right. Um, there's nothing in there that says that the policy actually has to say there's no content requirements for the policy. You just have to have a policy. Burn prevention. I think burns are, you know, alternative facts. I don't think that MR burns happen. So is, that's our policy. You know, is this check? You have a policy for, you know, burns. Is this similar with CT? I, to be honest with you, I don't sure? know. I'm okay. not, I don't know. I would, I would honestly, I'd be tremendously radiation. surprised because on the ionizing radiation side, you know, you have to have an RSO, Heavy you have radiation. to have radiation protection, you know, programs. There are, you know, legal requirements for radiation protection in, in the U.S. Right. Um, there, they, there are no equivalent, you know, minimum protections in the MRI world. So, so the medical physicist goes through this list of 18, you know, policy statements just to say, yes, this exists or no, it doesn't exist. Um, and then there are three other um, requirements. One of them... Um Imaging Diversified is staffed with managers, directors, technologists, and application specialists that can relate to our colleagues' everyday issues. We look to enhance the quality of work by sharing our expertise. Schedule a specialist today. 
One of them is, so ACR four zone, right? We mm -hmm. talk about the four zone as the ACR four zone. They essentially own it and branded it. If you're ACR MR accredited, the requirement um, for accreditation on that checklist is, does the site have appropriate signage and access controls? You don't even have to have ACR four zone to get ACR MR accreditation. Right, that's very loosely written. Right, yeah. What is appropriate and who decides that? Right. And is there any guidance for you know whoever the physicist is who's checking these boxes? Right. Um, I actually, I, I wrote to the ACR and I said, you know, it, you guys need to have some minimum, you know, guidance for the people who are doing this. And the AC, and they said, you know, well, we'll take that under advisement. And I didn't hear back from them for a while. It's so, like me telling my kids, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I got a wild hair and I actually wrote up some draft guidance for that checklist document and I sent it to the ACR and I said, look, you know, something like this doesn't have to be this. If you want to use mine, knock yourselves out. I give it to you. You are free to use this and edit it and distribute it and do whatever you want with it. Um, but something like this needs to go to the physicists so that they at least know what they're supposed to be looking for in these policies, you know, what constitutes appropriate, you know, access uh -huh. controls and signage and, and that sort of thing. Um, and the ACR wrote back to me and essentially said, yeah, no, we, we can't ask <laughs> the physicist to do that. That's, that's not in their wheelhouse. Interesting. And I'm like, wait a minute. So these are the people who are verifying that number one, the physicist works for the site that's seeking accreditation. They're beholden to right. the applicant. They're not beholden to the ACR. Right. So problem number one, fox guarding the hen house. Right. Problem number two, <laughs> you're telling me that the safety aspects of it are not in their wheelhouse. And, but these are the people that you're asking to verify safety. The last thing is on this checklist. So there are 18 policies and procedures. There are three sort of performance criteria, one of which is this appropriate access control and signage. At the very bottom, there's a, a, this is in an Excel spreadsheet. So you can make this like all a formula or whatever, count up how many yeses and how many noes, and you have to have at least 70% yeses, you know, to pass. No, at the very bottom, there's a little click box, pass, fail. And the oh. physicist, in theory, could say, no, they don't have any of these policies. No, they don't do any of these things. This site passes. Right. I wonder if there's a physicist who's ever failed a site. So it's... I asked the ACR. They said they had no information about, you know, right. uh, um, ever having been failed. So everybody knows of sites that fail for image quality related stuff. Right. The ACR, when I asked them, had no knowledge of anybody who had ever failed or, or had their application sent back because of safety issues. Right. So that twin promise of quality and safety, it's like, it's quality. Right. That, that, that. Is, <laughs> we're not really gonna talk about that very much. Right. <laughs> quality and safety is pretty much, you know, sort of the balance of so how it works. Well, I guess I'm curious, in a world of like cost cuts and trying to save every dollar they can, I mean, physicists aren't cheap. So, like, what is the incentive for a facility to be accredited by ACR? Um, all right. So, is it just to wash their hands clean of liability if it goes to litigation? So, so do they get more 
kickbacks insurance wise? I don't know. Uh, so yes, to the last part. Um, so related to Medicare, Medicaid, right? So mm -hmm. if you, if you as an imaging provider are going to get reimbursed by the feds for Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE patients, um, you have to be accredited. If you're a hospital, you have to have enterprise level accreditation. So that's like joint commission. Um, DNV. These are enterprise level accrediting organizations. If you are an outpatient imaging center, you have to have modality level accreditation. So that's ACR and IAC. So they're accrediting the CT scanner, the MRI scanner, that sort of thing. So um, any place that doesn't, I guess, would just be leaving money on the tables. Right. So, so you, if you are not accredited appropriately to whether you're a hospital or an outpatient imaging center, you, if, if you scan an, uh, a Medicare, Medicaid or TRICARE patient, yeah, you're out that money, you know, you're not going to mm -hmm. get paid for that. So, so there is, there's a financial reward associated with being accredited. It's like, dang, I can't get that hundred bucks they were going to give me. <laughs> <laughs> Three easy payments of $29.95. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what would you say, like, was maybe some of the biggest changes that, that you weren't expecting? And was or in, in addition to that, was there anything that you were expecting that was left out? Um, of the, the latest documents? Yeah. Um, yeah. So th there are a number of, of shifts over, over time. Uh, some of them include, um, because the ACR has a contrast manual, they essentially took all of the gadolinium contrast safety out of the, the now the manual on MR safety. They took all of that contrast information out and it, that now lives in the contrast manual, which I all suppose right. makes sense. Um, th there's a special section just for MR related contrast in that. So um, I don't think that happened in the 2020 edition, but that's just one of the changes that's happened over the lifespan of the document. Um, uh, other shifts, the, the 2020 document does um, essentially make reference to um, the VA system actually has one of the strongest from like a system wide level, one of oh. the strongest MR safety programs. They Set actually have. Yes, indeed. Nice. Um, the VA's uh, radiology program office has um, uh, essentially minimum safety performance standards for MR safety for all VA facilities. Oh, um, wow. Things like, and, and the ACR 2020 manual on MR safety included this, um, what the VA calls the plus one staffing model. So if you have two magnets with a shared control room, right? Mm -hmm. So you got one tech scanning magnet A, you got one tech scanning magnet B. The VA plus one staffing says there needs to be another body. There needs to be uh, a support person, um, you know, at least one above and beyond the scanning text mm -hmm. in a common zone three area. Um, sure. So for two magnets with a shared control room, the minimum staffing would be three for that. Um, if you had four magnets with a shared control room, minimum staffing would be five. Um, just to comply with the, the plus one staffing model. So the ACR... Um, in the 2020 manual um, incorporated the plus one staffing model. Um, interestingly, um, if you look at the ACR's MR accreditation requirements, there is a weird thing. So, so first off, the, the 2020 manual is not part of the site MR accreditation requirements. 
Um, but there are personnel requirements, you know, techs have uh -huh. to be, you know, Licensed. certified, you know, yeah. uh, or working on their, you know, certification and under the supervision of right. yada, yada, yada. There's also um, a personnel requirement for the physician who's supervising the MR service, the MRMD. Um, and the, the MRMD, the su supervising physician for the MR service, there's a thing in there that says, oh, by the way, you're supposed to make sure that the site complies with the 2020 manual. Um, but there's this disclaimer immediately after they say you're supposed to comply with the 2020 manual, right. it says, oh, by the way, yeah, we're not actually going to check. And the specific example that they give is the, um, the plus one staffing model. Because when it came out, they got all kinds of pushback. ACR is weird because it's not just an accrediting organization. It's also a professional society for radiologists. Oh. Well, I think talking to some of my peers, I think maybe a confusion about that initially was that it was the expectation was initially that maybe there was supposed to be two per scanner. Right. So, well, if you just have a single scanner, then yes, yes plus one exactly. is, you know, one additional person. So two people I think for that first scanner. I think so, some people did get confused about that, but you said the VA is pretty good about that as far as yes. safety goes. Do yeah. they have these tech gates? Uh, I don't, well, I don't think that they have specific requirements for- VA reach out to ages. <laughs> <laughs> well, two, you made a good point. I never put the two and two together about uh, the connection of being a society as well full of radiologists. And then a lot of the radiology groups are the ones who are being affected if they do need to hire right. additional staffing. So, so the ACR is a weird organization that it's kind of, you know, it's got two masters, right? It has what it has to do for CMS to meet the accreditation requirements. And at the same time, it's got to turn around and it's got to make its membership happy. You right. know? Um, and so it's from. trying to walk a tightrope. So it really can't be 100% dedicated towards quality and safety if quality and safety measures wind up ticking off their membership. Right. Um, so, yeah, the ACR is in a... In a peculiar situation and they're unique among all of the accrediting organizations that, that they have to. That's tough because you want to do right by both parties, right? You want to do right by the patients. You also want to do right by your society, like your members, right. your groups. So right. That's tough for sure. So, so that, that becomes really weird for the, the supervising radiologist or um, the modality modality supervising physician, I think is what the ACR calls it for the, the, the doc who essentially signs the accreditation paperwork saying, I'm the physician, I oversee this magnet, oh, right? right? So some physician, some radiologist presumably has to actually sort of sign off on the paperwork and say, I'm the physician responsible for this service. And that goes to the ACR. So in the personnel requirements, it says, hey, you doc who signed this paperwork, you are attesting to the fact that the site and the site paperwork they don't have to say or attest to any of this, you know. Right. You, Doc, are attesting that the site complies with the 2020 manual. Um, remember that in a hospital setting, at least, the, the radiologists are contracted. The group is, in most hospitals, the group is contracted, and they are not hospital employees. They are not in the chain of command over, you know, rad techs and nurses and, right. and that kind of thing. They're, they're sort of a parallel structure. Um, so you, 
radiologists who are signing off on the accreditation paperwork, you personally are responsible for making sure the site and the site staff follow the 2020 manual, despite the fact that you don't work for, you're not an employee of the hospital, you have no, you know, sort of supervisory responsibility over the people who are actually administering this, but right. you're personally responsible. Right. And oh, by the way, because there was such a fuss raised about the plus one staffing model from within the ACR membership, they specifically go and they call out and they're like, you know, there's been a lot of fuss made about this plus one staffing model. Uh, we just want you to know we're not going to check. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't say that in weak, those weak. words, but <laughs> right. essentially in the in the personnel requirements for the modality supervising physician, it says we're not going to check. Right. But if something goes wrong and it's, it's identified in. that, you know, if we figure out that the reason or one of the contributing reasons why something went wrong is because there weren't enough qualified people there. Right. Yeah. We're going to throw your butt under the bus so fast. Oh, for sure. Right. So yes, quality and safety. Right. And you know, you know, yes, there are these safety rules, but no, we're not going to check. But if you screw them up, yeah. We'll hold you to it. We're going to hang you out to drop. Well, that's one of the biggest issues, I guess, with, the not necessarily white paper, but with the uh, the way that these uh, these guidelines are written, it's that they are guidelines, right? They're not very strictly written where you have to do this and you have to do that. It's like we recommend. Right. So. Yes. So, yeah, the, the guidance document and the manual, because they're not official accreditation standards that can't be written, you know, thou shalt. Yeah. Right? They're just like, hey, guys, we think it would be a good idea if, right. you know, um, so it's it's more like in that power of suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so nobody really has to follow them. Well, I shouldn't say nobody. So um, Joint Commission actually in their diagnostic oh, imaging standards actually right. has specific requirements for MRI. Right. The super weird thing is Joint Commission actually requires more of the ACR4 zone than the ACR does. <laughs> ACR requires, you know, signage and access controls as appropriate. Um, Joint Commission in their diagnostic imaging standards actually requires zones three and four. They don't call them zones three and four, probably because we all identify the zoning with the ACR and they don't right. want to, you know, tip their hat to the ACR. Right. Um, but they essentially describe functionally zones three and four, um, not the four zone space. Zone one is the entire rest of the world. We really don't, we shouldn't be talking about zone one. So okay. it's really two, three, and four. So right. Joint Commission actually gets two thirds of that right because they require functionally zones three and four. Um, um, whereas ACR, and DNV and IAC and all the other accrediting organizations really don't have anything specific about, you know, you know, you should minimally have, you know, fill in the blank, whatever that is. Right. And Joint Commission is mostly, it's just hospital, right? So imaging centers wouldn't be affected by Joint Commission. So Joint Commission does have or did have um, an imaging center accreditation program. Oh, okay. Um, so um, they simultaneously kind of... Um, launched a modality um, specific accreditation. Oh. I think they really struggled with that because um, that wasn't Joint Commission's historic wheelhouse. Um, but 
if if I remember this correctly, um, they actually got CMS to say, um, hey, if an outpatient imaging provider wants to have uh, an enterprise level accreditation, we're going to create sort of a, a outpatient imaging center enterprise level accreditation. I think they got CMS to say, yeah, we'll take that instead of modality specific accreditation. So, so Joint Commission kind of has their toe in that water or, or did at one point in time. Right. Um, um, so, so the boundaries are not super bright and clear. And obviously there are lots of hospitals that also have ACR accreditation for their magnets. So, um, although for a hospital provider, your, your reimbursement from, from, for Medicare, Medicaid patients doesn't come from getting ACR or IAC accredited. Um, it comes from the enterprise level accreditation. So your joint commissions, your DNBs. So I guess when you see the papers and you see where we're at right now currently, um, where do you see holes in, like, as far as room for improvement? Because, like, I guess it's all relative. So, like, when you think about where we were 20 years ago, you give us a letter grade of an A. But when you think about room for improvement moving forward, where would you see MRI culture at? And you, or safety issues? You've been through plenty of facilities, so you have a pretty good broad perspective, right? Yeah. Um, of what majority of everyone's kind of doing. So, so I think. I think that there are, I think there are a few areas for, uh, they're ripe for, for some improvement. Um, one of them is um, the ACRs level one, level two trained um, people, right? There are sort of two problems with that. Um, you know, the ACR gives you two sizes. You're either a small or you're a large, right? right. You know, you're either level one or you're level two um, and you know, presumably all of your techs and all of your rads um, are going to be, you know, level two trained. So what training do you develop? What curriculum do you develop that is appropriate to both rads and techs? Right. You know, because the techs need to actually know how to drive the machine, but the rads need to have a little bit of understanding of, you know, well, what are the compromises if we're going to, you know, reduce SAR from three watts to one watt, you know? Uh, you know, what are the image quality implications of making those kinds of shifts? And do I want to direct a tech to, you know, do this or the other thing? That, so hopefully they have some at least, you know, fundamental understanding of... They're the ones that head up the whole risk analysis part of it, right? So like a patient right. with a device or something. So well, they, I would say that they should have a, an elite understanding of it. So so the the physician is going to be the one ultimately making the risk benefit decision and in theory, the physician should have the ability to kind of generate the risk profile. You're referring to the ordering physician? No, I'm talking about the radiologist. Okay. So the radiologist should be able to, um, you know, do a risk assessment to, to, you know, some level of competency. That's not to say that a tech who isn't hands-on with these patients, you know, five days a week, isn't going to have more knowledge in, in the risk assessment. Oh, piece bring it in. I want to hug you right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I would agree. <laughs> um, so there's no reason that the tax or an MRSO can't generate some or all of that risk assessment and essentially lay it at the feet of the radiologist. Now, what the radiologist does with that and how they weigh that in their risk benefit, you know, my hope would be that a radiologist would be able to kind of look through the risk assessment and say, you know, 
you missed a step or, you know, yeah, I don't think that the risk is as high or as low as you think it is for this particular attribute. Or I would hope that the radiologist would be comfortable and competent, you know, essentially providing that kind of, of input to the risk assessment, even if it's being prepared by a tech, by an MRSO. Mm-hmm. But I, I, in my experience, when I've seen them kind of teeter about some are super confident, some are less, uh, oh, yeah. is when it comes to like bullet fragments and stuff like that. And so you'll see radiologists will just say no. And then you'll say some that will say, well, how long has the bullet been there? Where is it at? Uh, what is the bullet made from? So I, I did a site visit at a site. Um, and when I do this, I love, not because it's exciting, it's boring as crap, but um, I love to go and do observations of scanning techs, weekends, night shifts, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, right. Um, because your weekday daytime techs are the ones who get to, you know, participate in the staff meetings and get the professional development. And, right. you know, the Medtronic rep is coming through and going to do a 20 minute presentation on, you know, new implanted devices and, and pacemakers. So those daytime weekday techs get more sort of professional development exposure than your nights and weekends for folks sure. do. So I want to go and I want to sit with the nights and weekends guys and I want to watch them scan. So I was doing this with a a hospital client. Uh, This was several years ago now. And um, it was at a busy hospital. They did all their inpatients overnight. They ran 24 seven with their MR service. So it's, you know, 3 a.m. Sunday morning or something like that. And I'm, you know, watching this guy scan. And I'm looking at the length of his inpatient work list. And I'm like, there is no way you're going to get through these patients before outpatients are supposed to start at at eight o'clock tomorrow morning or whenever that is. I was like, you know, that work list is three nights long and you've got half of a night left. You know, I'm like, does it ever stop? And he turns to me and he says, well, you know, it can stop anytime I want it to. And I must have had this sort of, you know what look on my face and and I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, yeah, you know, all of these inpatients, they all have, you know, something in them that's poorly documented. You know, they're 80 year old patients. They had something implanted 40 years ago. You know, there's a note in a radiology report, but nobody really knows exactly what it is. There's no MR conditional labeling on it. He's like, anytime it's just really crazy and I need a break because well, he does not represent the rest of us. <laughs> Sounds unethical. Keep going. <laughs> um, so he essentially says that, you know, for the, the nights and weekends, the most junior radiologists are the ones who are put on nights and weekends. So oh, they're the ones right. who are least comfortable with hairy decisions. situations. So he's like, all you need to do is find a patient who's got, you know, something that shows up on a, a dictated report from, you know, eight years ago, call up the you know, the junior rad who's, you know, covering for, for nights uh, and say, you know, I got Mrs. Smith. She's coming up, you know, three inpatients from now. Um, she's got this thing in her, you know, it's poorly documented. I just, I'm feeling uncomfortable about it. I want you to clear her, you know, right. for me. And, um, um, uh, maybe the daytime rad should, should do this. And so the, you know, patient gets bumped and voila, you know, right. I got a 40 minute meal break, you right. know, popping in the middle of my shift. So, <laughs> You've seen behind the curtains, Toby. <laughs> so this this level of this level of 
variability in terms of the knowledge and skill. It's not just the techs, it's the rads also. So, you know, when I'm saying my hope and expectation is that the rad feels comfortable reviewing the risk assessment, there are rads out there practicing, supervising MR studies who right. do not feel comfortable with this stuff. And that is a huge failing on our part. So one of the things, this is all long answer to a short question. Yeah, uh, sure. You were asking what I want to see in, you know, future editions or holes in the current um, ACR guidance. Um, we need to actually develop curriculum for MRI safety training. We need to have, you know, sort of minimum expectations. We need to uh, in fact, I do this when I'm consulting with clients. I break level two into, you know, a tech and a non-tech level two. Right. Um, you know, the techs obviously need to have additional safety training on how to run their machine effectively. You know, how do you switch between SAR and B1 plus RMS? You know, what does it mean if, you know, one is over and the other is under? And how do you compare that with MR condition? Those kinds of issues the techs need to know. The, you know, if you're doing level two training for, say, an anesthesiologist who has direct patient care responsibility regularly recurring in the MR environment, that person probably, in my opinion, should be trained to a level two. Right. They don't need to know, you know, the difference between SAR and B1 plus RMS, but they absolutely need to know, you know, why it's important to pad that patient. You know, they right. absolutely need to know that, you know, there's going to be, you know, disruption in the EKG output, and it's going to look like, you know, uh, elevated ST segment and know the patient is not having an MI, you know, right. just because they have an elevated ST segment. Um, so those kinds of, of elements of the training, we need to, I, I think we should. There's nothing like that right now in residency or when they go to their radiology training. There's no requirement for it. Oh, wow. If, uh, so there's, there's an organization that actually is like the accrediting body for uh, medical residency programs. And they do, you know, orthopods and surgeons and ENTs and radiologists. They actually publish the, the curriculum. This is what your radiology residency program has to teach people during their residency. Um, and there is, I, I don't think MRI is mentioned in the... Um, the residency training requirements for radiologists. Have you ever like reached out and thought about like partnering with them? Cause I feel like you have uh, enough presence in the industry that you could have enough influence as well. I don't know. So, so I talked with them and I asked them a question. I was like, you know, when, how, how do you go about updating these, these requirements for, you know, general accreditation yeah. requirements for residency programs? They said, Oh, we, we do it. Uh, periodically, you know, there's a regular review and update interval. And I'm like, awesome, cool. Um, when's the next one for radiology? And they're like, well, we have a whole bunch of them. So they're kind of on a rotating schedule. Excellent. Yeah. When's the next one for radiology? Yeah. We just approved it, the, the curriculum, um, like a year or two ago. Um, and we're on a 10 year review cycle. So we're not going to look at it again for eight more years. Now, I think I had this conversation with them a couple of years ago. So wow. know, now it's only six years before they enter another review cycle for it. Well, I think that's kind of crazy, especially with how fast radiology is moving as a whole. I mean, not in just technology, but just, uh, you know, the type of uh, ways that we're evaluating how we're kind of looking at things too. Sure. So, well, um, so, so years. Uh, wow. Yeah. Other things I would love to see um, incorporated and, and, Reg, you hit on um, some of the, the technological changes. 
we're seeing all of these, you know, new purpose built magnet systems. You know, oh, you've yeah. got your, well, you guys looked at swoop, you know, oh, yeah. um, you know, mm -hmm. so you got these low field portable systems. Um, you've got dedicated like neonatal systems, oh, yeah. um, where essentially you put the, the infant into like this little cassette really, you know, and you just sort of plug the cassette with the infant in, into the magnet. And the whole thing is kind of, you know, sealed up, sealed off. Right. You know, the five Gauss line is completely enclosed in the body of the MRI system. So now all of a sudden we don't really need the access control, um, pieces of it. The swoop, you know, it moves. How do you build access controls for something that rolls around the, the hospital? Right. So we're seeing all of these technological changes in imaging technology. Um, the new Siemens 0.55, I mean, less than one Tesla itself is not new. Um, but, you know, we're really sort of challenging the existing, you know, 1.5 and 3.0 kind of regime of, you know, how do we need to label products, you know, for implants and devices and MR conditionality and that sort of thing. Um, now that we're getting all of these different MR devices, um, I think that the, the, the labor crunch that I think every MRI provider has right now in terms of being able to get enough text to cover shifts the way that they want to be staffed, um, the labor crunch is really pushing, um, you know, remote scanning technology. Um, and I, Ooh, I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be scanning up at my cabin. I'm, I'm picturing two years from now. <laughs> <laughs> there are sites that are doing that now. Uh, uh, and, and, and the groundwork, yeah. you know, I'm super excited for it, but only if they do it right. Cause you just said the word that also right. I, I didn't, I mean, I empathize with this super scary because the potential is, Super scary. Yeah. So um, in the 2020 document, um, so I was I was actually on the committee that that wrote the the 2020 document, and as we were sort of approaching the end of the edit period, um, I started seeing uh, marketing from the OEMs for this remote scanning stuff. Um, now, remote scanning has been a re reality for 20 years. Right. You can go to, you know, Best Buy. And you can get a keyboard video monitor switch set up and you can plug it into your MR system and, and with a high speed internet connection, you know, the actual controls for the system can be, you know, anywhere on the other end of a high speed internet connection. Right. So this is not new technology. It is new coming from the OEMs, from GE, from Siemens, from Philips, right. from Canon. And it's a lot cheaper now too, right? Like the technology's cost, I feel like it's come down like, I feel like you can remote into anything nowadays. <laughs> I can remote into my phone. <laughs> so, so I started seeing this marketing from the the major equipment vendors for you know remote scanning capabilities, and I'm like, you know, nothing in the ACR white paper, guidance document, manual, whatever name you know, I, there is nothing in there that describes sort of the the total paradigm shift that remote scanning is going to introduce. There's nothing in there that really talks about, you know, well, if the person who's running your scanner is, you know, In two Dubai. counties, two states, two countries over, you know, and you have a non-tech person who's essentially doing all of the, the hands-on patient care, and there, there are different models of remote scanning. You can remote in just a, a a scan expert, you know, if you're doing a, you got a cardiac study and your tech doesn't really know, you know, cardiac, you know, 
you can essentially Uber, you know, it's the Uber of, of technologists, you know, Hey, right. you know, I can come in, I can remote in, I can do your cardiac scan and it'll be great. Or, right. you know, some of these orthopedic implant, um, companies where they custom fab the orthopedic implant based on the anatomy of the patient. So we're going to do super high resolution scans of this patient's knee before, you know, pre-surgical surgery so we can you know do surgical planning and do the final fab for it right. but those you know those scans are incredibly technically you know on point so maybe you know maybe zimmer has you know an mr tech who works in their corporate headquarters or whatever and you're doing a zimmer knee replacement you know their tech essentially just... telepresence in to do that one study and you may never see them again. So right. there's there's sort of the expert for one exam model of things. And then there's, oh my God, I have an MRI. I'm in, you know, small town America somewhere and I can't attract, um, you know, an MR tech to my little town. Um, and that's when you send out the bat signal. <laughs> right, you know, so, so hey, I'm gonna pay somebody working from an air traffic control station, you yeah. know. Uh, or cabin. Or, or, or working in their cabin, you know, in their fuzzy slippers um, with a high-speed internet connection. Uh, yeah. Starlink. Thank you, Elon. Thank you, Elon. <laughs> um, and I'm just gonna have that person do my scanning, you know, 40 hours a week or whatever. Right. Um, so there, there are different models of it and there are different implications for safety and operations and that kind of thing. But that's another piece that really hasn't been, you know, addressed. So right. technology change, but not really so much the technology of the scanners, but, you know, we've done remote interpretation. You know, the radiologists have been doing that for wow. decades, yeah. right? Yeah, that was a game changer too. And now we have the capability to do the exact same thing, but on the technologist side, how right. does that, how does that change the, the model of operation? So right. that's, that's something that I'd love to see as a, started to say, and then I squirreled myself, yeah. um, as we were finishing up the 2020 document, um, I snuck in, uh, I didn't really sneak it in, but at, at the last <laughs> minute I asked, you know, can we include a statement that says remote scanning, um, doesn't change the facility's obligation to provide, you know, safe care. Right. So we got that kind of, you know, umbrella statement in there, but what it's missing is any kind of practicality of what does that mean when, you know, your MR tech, because the entire ACR manual on MR safety is written under the assumption that the tech is sitting right there. Yeah, so do you see revisions coming to like future white papers? I don't know. In right. terms, I mean, in regards to remote scanning? Right. Well, I was just gonna say, because as soon as there's enough information, they'll put out a new paper, right? But when do they know, hey, there's enough information for, I don't know, like, I feel like when the last 2021 came out, COVID had happened. And then I kind of expected to have kind of some revisions on, you know, infective disease and things like that kind of come out again. Yeah. Things like that. Um, to the best of my knowledge, we still haven't figured out COVID and MR. You right. know, uh, <laughs> you know, we were we were terminal cleaning every surface in the rooms, you know, in the first few months of COVID. And then it's like, well, wait a minute, maybe that's not really what we need to do. Maybe, you know, right. you know, which wipes are we supposed to use? You know, oh, the wipes that are best for, you know, killing, you know, this virus are ones that are contraindicated for our scanner. Our scanner says, you know, whatever you do, don't use the purple top wipes or whatever, <laughs> you know. Um, so I think that that we're Obviously, we know 
some stuff better about COVID and, and sort of, you know, how do we manage that inside the, the box that is, you know, the hospital or the imaging right. center. Um, but I don't think that we've really kind of come to, to a universal consensus about, you know, how are we going to do this? Um, um, so I, I think the COVID piece of it, absolutely. I expect that at some point in time, we're going to say, Hey guys, we figured it out and this is really what we need to be doing. Um, but I don't know that, I don't know that we're there yet. Right. Well, I guess as far as the whole science of MRI, it's still in its infancy. And so remote scan, every, all of it's new, relatively speaking, yeah. you know, um, it's all within our lifetime almost. Yeah. Right. Um, we're still trying to book Dr. Demadian. <laughs> <laughs> Answer my phone call. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, the spam. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think, uh, let me see if I, because I got a few questions. Uh, oh, one thing I did want to ask you is, are the AC guidelines tailored to field strength? For example, like plus one, is that for only 1.5 strength and higher? Or is like, do you really need a plus one for a hyperfine? So, um, I guess that wouldn't have a control room. So that's maybe, yeah, the so that, so that doesn't have a control room. Um, uh, technically the five gauss line come once when you have the hyperfine <laughs> plugged in, the five gauss line actually comes out a little ways from it. You know, they have the little hula hoop deal. Um, by the way, five gauss is switching to nine gauss. So their little hula hoop thing, <laughs> right. you know, may need to get smaller, but yeah, I, you know, um, not specifically field strength related, but um, yeah, you take away the five gauss line, you essentially take away the, the safety benefit from the four zone, from access controls and, excuse me, uh, from, you know, making sure that, that, you know, we screen for pacemakers because it, not just pacemakers, but you know, the, the five gauss line is really, it exists in fact, it used to be called the pacemaker line on, on, you know, like site drawings and stuff like that previously. It exists because implanted medical devices can be disrupted by magnetic fields. So if we don't have those magnetic fields, you know, sort of out in space, right. you know, the hyperfine swoop or, you know, the embrace neonatal MR system, um, if they're not out in space, why do we put doors and locks and control access in the way that we do with the four zone. The fact of the matter is we don't really need to from a safety standpoint. Right. So some of the, the safety progress really um, needs to be recognizing when we have MR systems that the existing rules offer no safety benefit for. So oh, you know, the, right. the, the swoop, the, the embrace, um, and we need to be sort of smart about let's not require, you know, the magnet is always on signs right. if the magnet isn't always on or, right. you know, strict access controls. If there's really no safety risk, if if you're you know walking up and around this magnet because the magnet is so low powered or, you know, so self-contained. Someone at ACR watching this right now is like, this is why we got it so loosely written. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you guys get it? And I'd actually like to have the president of ACR on. Um, right. And so if you, if see, you are watching. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look for my email. There are a couple of folks from ACR giving a talk at HRA, uh, oh, right? HRA. You should go and try and buttonhole them after their talk. Or... Yeah, that's a great idea. Like Stay tuned for think, that. Toby. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, Katie, you had a question uh, before we started recording and I interrupted you. Go. 
Um, I think you kind of answered that, but I did have another question about the plus one staffing model that we were talking about. Yeah, go. What happens in like overnight hours at a facility that, you know, maybe you take call and there's not two people staffed. So then someone would get called in. They would be alone. Something could happen. Is that a legal situation? What does that look like? So uh, I'll ask, answer the last part of your question first. So legal situation. The ACR manual guidance document, um, it's not a thou shalt, it's not a requirement for accreditation or licensure or anything like that, but it is the best practice legal standard. So if you screw up and somebody gets hurt and, you know, and you didn't follow what the ACR manual says, you have an uphill climb. You essentially have to demonstrate that despite the fact that you didn't follow industry best practice guidance, you know, that that you shouldn't be held responsible, that that, that right. was not a dereliction of duty on your part. Um, so, you know, all of the, the lawyers are essentially going to say, yeah, whatever this says, make sure you do it because if something bad goes wrong, you know, I don't want to have to fight this uphill battle. But uh, to your specific question about, you know, after hours, you know, somebody gets called in. Um, it still applies. The ACR essentially says, yeah, you should still have. So I think the language is two MR safety trained individuals. Level two trained, right? They don't have to be level two. Oh, no. So the, the other person. Um, it could even be a nurse, a floor nurse. It, um, it needs to be somebody who is MR safety trained, but you could do level one safety training yeah. for a nurse or an x-ray tech okay. or, you know, so somebody else who's going to be, you know, sort of on shift in the premises. So, so, you know, MR, we're only going to do on an emergent on-call basis, but we're going to have somebody from x-ray. We're going to have an x-ray tech there, you know, 24 hours a day. Um, I'm making up a hypothetical. So, you know, Realistic. yeah. So, you know, maybe we just get that MR, uh, that, excuse me, get the x-ray tech, get them level one MR safety training. It's mm -hmm. like, look, you're, you're here, you know, to just make sure that if something goes wrong, you know, we're going to run the code correctly. Right. That's really sure. your job while you're here. Or if I go to pull the patient off the table and they fall on me and I'm pinned or whatnot, you know, your job is to go and get help, you know, because you're MR safety trained, you're not a danger to, you know, yourself or anybody else in this environment. Um, but it doesn't have to be a you know a whole second tech. I think that the whole plus one staffing model, you know, um, Robert, you mentioned you know that the people thought that meant that you had to have two techs per magnet. You right. Know? First off, it's not two techs; it's two MR safety trained people. Right. Yeah. Um, so the second one doesn't. Obviously, you need to have a tech to actually run the scanner, unless we're talking remote operation. Um, you know, but right. you know the second person doesn't. That can be a tech aide. You know, that, that can be, you know, I was at a hospital where they actually had the MR schedulers worked inside the MR unit, you know, and it's like you could cross train your schedulers, you know, to, to be level one safety trained. In fact, they were actually inside the controlled access environment. So they were level one tra safety trained at that site. So, you know, I think our facility sends out learning modules that requires anybody in direct patient care uh, to be level one trained. 
I believe that's correct. Is that correct, Katie? Yeah, I believe so. And those modules get better and better every year. A little more interactive, a little more attention grabbing. Reggie helps to make them. Is you that what you're saying? Reggie yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty impressed by them. <laughs> They're the best thing I've ever seen. <laughs> that's right. I do take some notes from Toby's presentations. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I get a little Toby. get a little credit, a little attribution right, you know, on the right. bottom of it. <laughs> Technically, it says season three podcast slash Toby uh, episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that works for me. <laughs> well, I feel like we covered a lot. And I'm happy about that. Do you, do you feel like we missed anything? Anybody I, in the room? I do here? have a kind of off topic question for Toby. Uh, any interesting incidents in the industry right now? You don't have to name any names, but any interesting stories that we can all learn from? Um. Uh. Not at the moment. I mean, not that that I'm really sort of zeroing in on. Okay. Um, there are um, there's some some weird uh, burn cases that I'm looking at um, okay. where we're just trying to figure out what the heck happened. Um, right. But we don't really know enough about you know how things that don't sort of follow the 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 standard patterns and it's like, oh yeah, no, that one is, you know, the patient was touching the bore wall or stuff right. like that. So any kind of projectile incidences or um missile effect? Nothing that that has been brought to my attention That's uh, right. yeah, on recently. Um <laughs> that on the Facebook MRI safety group every once in a while there people post scary looking stuff. You know, uh, there was a guy I always who, love your response by the way. There's a guy who posted another picture of a pistol, you know, sort of stuck to the front oh, of the yeah. magnet. Right. Um you know, posted that a couple of weeks ago. So I had multiple patients with guns before. Yeah. I saw 2020 to actually put firearms in that manual, right? Yeah. Or firearm safety in that yep. manual. Yeah. They you talked about like uh, detainees and security people and right. you know, working in and around, you know, MRI. And, yeah. Um, you know, I, in terms of, you know, stuff getting attracted to the magnet, um, you know, a lot of that is, is sort of, you know, Second verse, same as the first. I mean, we've, we've seen a lot of the stuff that's gone flying at magnets. Right. You know, the same stuff continues to go flying at magnets. Um, it's not, it's not new, you know. Um, sure. It's typically caused by lack of education. Um, mostly lack of education. Sometimes it's just, you know, people who, you know, are pushed in too many directions at once and they lose focus. You know, it's not for lack of not knowing that they weren't supposed to do it. It's just, you know, oh Something man, I gotta, you know, I gotta research that, you know, patient who's coming up and I gotta call this referring physician back because we got questions we need to get them to answer. And oh my More God. More vacation I'm time is all I'm hearing right now. <laughs> More vacation time. <laughs> so well, I think we come, I mean, we're about to head over to HARA right now. Uh, so I think, do should we wrap it up? Yeah, I'm, I'm good, yeah. Katie? I'm good. good. Toby? Good episode. I think I'm here for you guys. So, <laughs> but we're going to head over there to the convention center. Uh, again, it's AHRA. Look for our episode dropping at the last week of this month. It's going to be MRI Safety Week. Thank you, Toby. You're the OG of MRI Safety, by the way. Yes. You know, I don't know if you know that. Uh, no, I, I think Dr. Canal is the OG. I'm, I think I'm, you, <laughs> you guys both are. You're okay. the same. So get a thug life tattoo. I don't know. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I get like an OG MRI Safety or something. Yeah, right. I'll, I'll throw down on that. Okay. All right. <laughs> I got 10 on well, it. We'll crowdsource the design and the funding for the tattoo. Link in the description. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but thank you for watching Zone 3 Podcast. Thank you for subscribing. Tell your friends about us. Leave comments. We like to read those. We like to respond to those. We like it when you thumbs up. 
we like all of those things that YouTubers tell you to do. So, Reggie, yes. is there anything I'm missing? Zone 3 Podcast, we are out.